0: Welcome back to Run Your Mouth. I'm your host, David Melley. This week we have a crossover episode with the City is Mad podcast and my good friend Chris Chavez. And we also have Russell Dinkins of Princeton University as our guest. Um, This episode is a little different than uh, many Run Your Mouth episodes. It's a a little more serious, a little more thoughtful. Um, It was recorded remotely over Zoom. Um, and as a result uh, I, I think it has a little bit of a, a, a different tone but uh, I think it's really important and, and I think you guys will enjoy uh, the conversations that we had. We talked a lot about um, racial inequality and what's going on in the U.S. with regards to uh, racism and police brutality and then we also talked about um, Brown University and their decision to cut their men's track and field and cross-country programs. Um, so and hope you enjoyed that. Um, I'll put links to both um, Russell's and my articles that we referenced in the podcast in the show description, as well as the Brown University's uh, announcement um, of the program cutting. Um, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, we'll be back either later this week or early next week with kind of a uh, regularly scheduled programming, um, but I hope you uh, enjoy this and and continue to think critically about um, the role that you can play in in a lot of these conversations. Uh, Until next time, this has been Run Your Mouth.
1: All right, and now we welcome on Russell Dinkins and my co-host for this episode, David Melly, which, you know, it's funny because we usually do an annual crossover episode between my podcast and David's podcast. We do it around uh, April in the for the Boston Marathon, but this year we weren't able to do it. So consider this, I guess, our annual little crossover episode. Guys, thanks, thanks for joining me. Well,
2: thank thanks you for man. having us. Yeah.
1: So, lots has been going on in the world in the past, you know, week or so, Um, and so kind of we'd be remiss not to talk about the current events, and Russell, as, you know, a black track and field athlete, I'll start with you, just kind of how, how heavy has it been, and also how have your emotions changed over the past week, because, you know, I think there's just a wide range of things people are feeling right now, and everyone is taking this time to do a lot of self-reflecting reading listening and it's just kind of there's sadness there's anger but there's also a little bit of hope now how are you feeling
2: well thank you for uh you know uh you know asking that question and you know just kind of also acknowledging that there are a range of emotions that a lot of us are feeling right now um yeah so it's it's been tough um at this present moment i'm okay um but uh yeah you know it's interesting it's just like there's kind of always this latent or dormant kind of understanding that there are these things that happen in the world uh, that can you know, affect uh, you know black people in a particular way. But uh, I'm not gonna speak for all black people, but for me, uh, I don't necessarily, it's not at the forefront of my mind all the time, but having the confluence of events happen in quick succession really kind of like activated Um, Kind of all of this like latent or dormant anxiety, fear, um, anger, sadness, you know, the range of emotions. And I think a lot of other black people uh, kind of felt that at the same time um, too. Um, You know, a lot of my black friends, uh, you know, we've been kind of confiding in um, and with one another and a lot of them shared similarly, like, you know, they were having a lot of difficulty. Like, I'll be honest, uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, That was a really emotionally draining weekend. I remember just being physically exhausted, like having to sleep for uh, seven hours and, um, you know, feeling my muscles ache and I didn't even do anything, um, you know, athletic that weekend. It's just, just draining, uh, just kind of seeing all the images and just kind of being inundated with the trauma. Um, And, you know, speaking to other friends, you know, some of my guy friends saying that they're not able to sleep well, they're not eating well some of my female friends, um, you know, saying that their emotions are manifesting in different ways as well. And so um, it, it was really hard to have this collective experience um, and to kind of have this collective kind of trauma that we were all kind of dealing with at the same time and feeling as if we are, you know, when I, when I see images of Ahmaud Arbery or when I see George Floyd, or even when I see Brianna Taylor, I see myself, I see people I know, you know, my good friend, you know, Raven Rogers shared, you know, a story to her Instagram about, you know, an experience that she had that really, you know, impacted me deeply hearing about that because she's someone I know and to hear about, you know, the way that, you know, she had a really, you know, a negative experience with the police. You know, all of those things together kind of, you know, it's a lot to deal with. I think. As a nation, we are going through a very necessary process. This is necessary. Uh, We need to go through this. It's going to be painful. It is not going to be uh, just this week or this next week. Uh, It's going to be a long process. Um, We still have a lot of work to do, but I am hopeful and I'm glad to see that a lot of people outside of the Black experience are recognizing that this is something that we need to deal with, um, you know, and that we are finally having these tough conversations um, that have been swept under the rug or left unsaid or have been deemed to be impolite. Um, there's no time for, you know, being impolite. We got to get we got to get to work. So um, I am hopeful um, that we will get there. Um, I think this is the third kind of cultural uh, you know, uh, revolution that we're going through in the United States. You know, We went through uh, you know, the Civil War, we went through in the uh, 60s, um, the civil rights era, and now we're going through uh, this right now, which is combining police brutality, but I think we're also gonna see a lot of other issues kind of rise to the fore over the next um, you know, couple years um, in response to what we're seeing right now.
1: What makes this one sort of feel different and sort of the fact that this movement? Because you highlighted just two really big turning points in our country's history. So, why did it take until now, you think, for this to happen? Because, you know, everyone's familiar with Trayvon Martin's story and Michael Brown. And so, this has been happening for years and years. And kind of to a degree, I feel like. This was from a conversation I had just recently with Darrell Hill. He was saying the reason why this feels a little bit different is because we watched for you know almost nine minutes a police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck, and there's no question there that there's no, that this was wrong. In the past, we've had incidents where you know with George Zimmerman or with Darren Wilson that there are these little degrees of of evidence that people will cling on to to kind of justify these wrongdoings by police officers. And now for the first time, like this was just categorically wrong. So why do you think this this turning point and this change is going to stick? Well,
2: I think a lot of of these things, you kind of need enough pressure and momentum to kind of start to build. Um, And so, you know, we like to think about the, uh, the civil rights era as kind of, oh, yeah, you know, the March on Washington. The civil rights era actually spanned about 15 years, you know. I mean, Rosa Parks, I believe that was in the, was that 1955? It, it, you know, and then 1968 was when the um, civil rights legislation was signed. Um, the March on Washington for um, Jobs and Freedom, which I'm going to get to that point in a second, because that last part is often left out. Um, that was in 1963. So, you know, it there was a number of many movements that occurred over a series of years that built into this culminating force that was so pronounced that the masses had to respond. I mean, Martin Luther King in 1963 was not a very popular figure. The March on Washington was not um, something that had uh, majority approval in the U.S. So uh, I think it just takes, unfortunately, it does take time to get to that point. And I think what happened with this. There were three instances that happened in quick succession where it was very clear that, okay, these instances were really, really, there's like, there's no kind of, (laughs) there's no defending this. And those three happening in quick succession within the broader context of all the others that have come before them, I think was the flexion point. So I don't think it was just George Floyd and, and the graphic, horrific way that he was killed um, in isolation—that definitely was the catalyst. But there was, there were, there was enough already existing to, whereas you know, if there was something else. We would go over the edge and that's um and I, I believe you know my analysis um and that's that's what we're seeing right now so um, it's unfortunate i wish that george floyd brianna taylor and ahmaud aubrey were here today i wish that they were able to say that this happened to me and i almost but i am still here i would rather have that I, you know I, I don't want us to have to have another dead body in order to see the changes that we need to see in this country you know, um, and so that is, you know, that is what I, that is what I will say. We have seen enough, and I think this moment—the reason why we are getting to this moment, the advent of social media, the advent of seeing things filmed—has allowed for us to get to this point. So, um, you know, America has been, you know, it's always been a very interesting experiment. Um, we have not always gotten it right in the process. Um, but uh, we have usually made it onto the other side with some significant gain. So I, I, I do know that we are gonna get out of this period with a new America that's gonna have some different ways to respond to our social challenges. It's just, uh, are we gonna go for you know 10%? Are we gonna go for 25%? How far are we gonna go? I think that's the question.
0: You mentioned social media and I, I think this is something that's particularly relevant this week and and today now that we're um kind of in our a little farther on and and kind of moving past um, you know kind of the initial shock and, and outrage into trying to move to action like the impulse of social media is always so much to move to the next thing like what's the you know like get the new content out get the new issue like how do you feel like what can we be doing to, like you said, you know, these movements take time, they take, you know, not days, but months, years of action. How do you you see us keeping the momentum going this time to kind of, you know, really move forward?
2: Right. Um, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, before I, you know, uh, give my, my thought on it, let me preface by saying, you know, I am not the person in the street doing the work. Um, so I want to give, you know, respect to the people who I've dedicated years um, to build organizations from the ground up when people didn't wanna give them money, when people didn't think that their uh, ideas or their advocacy was worth uh, considering. Um, so, you know, the people that are really doing the work, um, we have to, you know, the, the unspoken, you know, uh, the, the people whose names that we don't know and may never know, um, those are the people that uh, we definitely have to tip our hats to because they're gonna be go the ones who are gonna advance the issues that will eventually make its way into policy. Um, I think right now I'm seeing a lot of positive engagement on social media. I'm seeing a lot of people advocating for donating to a variety of different organizations. Um, Some of the organizations are doing a lot of great work. Um, Actually all of them are doing great work. Some of them are more reform-based, so let's reform the system. Some um, of them are a little bit more uh, kind of, uh, well, let's challenge the system. I think, you know, I have my own kind of thoughts. I'm a little bit more, uh, you know, less challenging system type of guy, but I do not think that um, it's not worth your time to uh, donate or invest in reform its institutions. We need all the solutions. We need a robust set. Um, so let's do everything and above. Um, so I think that that is really good. And I've seen a lot of people also encourage people, not only to donate to these organizations, But if you are capable and if you are able to think about recurring um, payments, um, even if it's as little as $5, um, because that helps to continue um, to support these organizations over time. Um, And a lot of these organizations are working with local officials um, on policies and local policy influences state policy and that influences federal policy eventually. Um, And so if we do wanna see um, change occur, Um, in terms of policy, uh, I think that's one way. Another way uh, people can do what people can do to take it from social media um, to their personal lives, people can post on social media ways that they can try to influence their workplaces um, and think about what diversity looks like in their workplace and what does it, how they can make diversity actionable and not just kind of a word, not just something that, oh, this sounds nice. We put it on our website. You know, there's like a three to five sentence paragraph. And we have like, you know, a 45 year old black woman who's the head of that, uh, you know, that program, uh, but you know, we're not really doing anything else besides that. That's not, that's not really doing anything. And so what, what, having, encouraging your company, if you're in a position to do so, I know a lot of people have different job um, situations, um, but if you are in a position to do so, um, and if you are in a position of uh, authority or privilege in your particular organization, uh, thinking about what those programs, uh, things can look like. Maybe we should bring in outside people and consult with you know um, organizations, not just have a diversity training once every three years. We need to have something that is ongoing. Maybe we're doing something on a five monthly basis on what we're doing, check-ins about our progress. You know, there, there are lots of different ways that you can influence change uh, you know, kind of on the micro level, but then also on the macro level. So those are two things that I can think of. And then the diversity trainings bit um, that I've brought up in the workplace. If people do want to do that, share what you're doing, share your wins, your wins as well, your wins and losses, uh, you know, on social media, um, you know, Twitter, Instagram. Um, I'm not into TikTok. I don't understand it, but sure, make a little TikTok dance, like whatever you need to do to get the message out there um, and to have these conversations continuing um, you know I think is a, is a good strategy
0: and and just backing up for a second here I mean I obviously this is a running podcast yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and and I think for a lot of folks for the you know in the best way possible are new to this these issues in this conversation, and particularly a lot of white folks um, so I guess and obviously there's a diversity of opinion on this and and you might not feel the way some other people might, but like how uh, to be a good white ally, not just the action that you can take, but how do you want people to talk about this? issue? You know, ever in a conversation like that, when someone's, you know, making a good faith effort to, learn but there's more i guess in terms of just the interpersonal relationship like where where can how can folks do that in a way that's positive
2: all right cool uh, yeah i think uh there are a few different ways that uh white allies uh could um you know could definitely be supportive but let me specifically couch it in you know running track and field because that's uh, you know why people listen to this um so
0: and, well, I, I, and I just say that. Sorry, I just say that, meaning that like folks don't aren't necessarily like super educated on this issue that are listening to this, and we want them to be.
2: So. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, listen, yeah. that's that is totally fine. All right, so let's. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people listen uh, to this podcast and are really interested in track and field. Probably know the realities of track and field at the uh, professional level, uh, but some may not. So you know, let me just uh, break it down a little bit. So um, the. Uh, <clears throat> Track and field is a sport where, you know, I don't think a lot of athletes, even athletes who have great contracts, athletes who are pretty well positioned, I don't think a lot of athletes feel like they have a lot of agency to, uh, to say or do uh, what they want because you're really at the whim of your sponsor and of your agent. Um, and, you know, with uh, some athletes' contracts are such that they can get cut for a myriad of different reasons. Um, and so, you know, a sport where you're so beholden to, I mean, all sports, your it's based off your performance, but you can literally go from having a full contract to, you know, you're not hitting a certain time one year, just having one off season, not making a team, you know, you're the number one in the world, you have a bad race at the, at the world championship trials, you don't make the team, you're not that old. You might get cut. You know what I mean? Uh, And so that is the reality. Whereas if you're a basketball player, you have a bad season. Yeah, people are going to be mad at you, but you might not get cut. And if you get cut, another team is going to pick you up if you were number one or number two or number three in the world. Um, That's a bit of an extreme example, but it's not that far off. I know some people who are pretty – I've known some people who won gold medals at world championships that got cut two years later. You know what I mean? So um, that's the reality. Now that's the top end of the sport. There are a lot of people who are within that – You know, they're number five to number 15, number 15 to number 20 in the U.S. um, who don't feel like they have any kind of space to say anything because they don't want to offend any potential sponsor. I mean, a lot of athletes before they are able to get sponsorship, a lot of them have to work, you know, part-time jobs. I think I saw a stat: the average uh, income for uh, USA track and field athletes is like $17,000 or something like that. So, um, which is not too far off from like you know considered you know um, you know for a single person considered poverty. So um, there are just a lot of realities around why there hasn't really been a lot of vocal activism within the track and field space specifically because I don't feel like people feel as though they have the ability to do that because their careers can be Their careers are so dependent on their performance and also whether or not companies will think they are valuable to align with them. So I think that has made track and field athletes in particular, very cautious about saying anything um, like this, whereas you'll see NBA players having, you know, feeling as though they have a lot more agency. Um, You know, you, you, I mean, I think uh, Dwyane Wade or LeBron, I think both of them wore "I can't breathe" after the Eric Garner um, situation on the on the court. Um, you know you don't see things like that, and and we know this is the case because uh, Gwen Berry she raised her fists um during the Pan Am Games and she lost one of her sponsors. You know, just like that. Um, you know, so that is a risk. I mean, we know about the guys who were standing on the podium in 1968; they didn't get their medals, and so you know, like I mean, they they suffered significant consequences for decades. Um, so I, I think that um, that's one of the reasons why you don't see it that much which has made this moment particularly unique. you're seeing a lot of track and field athletes using their platform this is the first time I've ever seen track and field athletes and particularly some of the white track and field athletes to be um, specific um, you know kind of calling you know uh, you know you uh, calling this um, this issue out. And I've been a particularly, um, you know, happy to see uh, a really great allyship um, from a lot of the, frankly, the white distance female runners. Um, they've been kind of showing a beautiful allyship in the way that they've been using their platforms to not only talk about these issues, but to not center themselves in their advocacy. That's really important. So one thing that I will say when you're advocating for these issues, remember whose voice you're trying to center. um, And remember, you're not the person um, that is centered to these issues, even though they might be important to you, even if you have a friend that is your best friend, you are not that person. So try your best to center the people who are experiencing these issues. So like, for instance, um, you know, there are a lot of women's advocacy issues that are really important to me. Um, I, really, I try really hard when I advocate on behalf of these issues um, in my personal life to try to center that advocacy around their voice and to not put my own spin on it, to not say, oh, I know exactly how women feel. No, I don't. I will never know how a woman feels about certain things. Like, I just won't, you know what I mean? I can empathize to the best of my ability. I will never be able to fully understand. Just like someone who is not black, will never be able to fully understand what it's like. You know my personal experience, and I, I was followed. You know, from New Jersey to my house twice. You know, by the police. You know, with a uh, uh, with a, a light. Uh, you know, um, shining on me from the hood of the, of the car. Um, you know, uh, why? Why was I followed? Why? Why did they? Slowly use their patrol car to follow me the entire length of my block until I got to my house. Stop in my house and keep the light on me until I got into my house. Why they do that? Did they want to keep me safe? I don't think that was why they were following me. You know, and so you know, no one would. You know, if you're not black, you don't necessarily understand what that feels like. You don't understand like the emotional response that you had from that. The fact that I was already kind of prepared for that to happen. You know what I mean? Like I. When it was happening, I didn't freak out. I just knew, okay, don't put your hands in your pocket. Don't look at them. I right? just like, don't walk too fast. Don't walk too slow. I link it to the door make sure you just take your keys out and just, you know, put it in the door, try to open the door as quickly as possible but not look rushed. I, you know, I was already having all this self dialogue with myself, but I knew that I had to do that because I just, there's just certain realities. Um, so like, when you are advocating, you know, on behalf of other people, just uh, you know, try to center their voice, and what does that mean? Well, say, you know, I don't know what this experience is like, but this is what um, you know, other people have said, you know, so I wanna bring this issue up. That's one thing you can do. You can even acknowledge, I don't know about these issues and I wanna be better. I am asking if others can invite me in. Boom, you know, like that, those are simple ways of showing that you care, acknowledging that you might not be perfect, and it's okay, this is an imperfect process. Um, but um, those are the kind of, you know, that's kind of the, some of the advice that I would, you know, that I would, that I would give uh, to those who are, you know, not Black, you know, but will, who are looking to uh, support the community. And then another thing that I will say, um, I know myself and a lot of Black uh, people that I know gotten a lot of messages from a lot of white people, specifically like, hey, just showing you that I love you. And it's like, thank you so much. That was a lot, <laughs> you know what I mean? So one of the best messages I got uh, two of my white friends, one one of whom, I, I won't put him on blast, but he's um, a very good runner. Um, uh, and um, these two guys, they just said, I'm just reaching out to tell you that I'm thinking about you. Um, no, no need to respond. I'm just letting you know that, you know, I'm here for you. And, you know, just to, you know, take care of what you need to do and, um, you know, focus on your mental health. And I, I really appreciated that because I'll be honest, I got like <laughs> – I think I got like 25 messages and I didn't respond to any of them for like five days. And I put it on Facebook. I'm like, y'all, listen, thank you. I love y'all. I'm like trying to prevent, I'm trying to like not like cry myself to sleep every night. So I am going to not respond to any of y'all right now because I need to wor- worry about my mental health. I need to do some yoga. You know what I mean? I need to like sit here and breathe, drink some water, and then I'll get back to y'all. So I did eventually um, to back to everybody, but um, it's well-intentioned. But if you're reaching out to somebody, expecting them to give you something in return, think about what you're doing first. You know what I mean? Like reach out to that person, knowing that you're reaching out to them for them. You're not, you know, if you're reaching out to someone for yourself, you might need to kind of take a moment to think, think about what your, uh, when your attention is.
0: And that goes back to the, the centering conversation. And Chris, like, you looked like you had a question, but uh, I'll just say, well, you can post an Instagram without being in the photo. Like that is my p s a to all uh maybe uh white female distance runners with large followings um, one of the ways you can be a good ally is to take yourself out of the equation <laughs> so
2: uh, real quick where Chris quick, goes back uh, i uh I saw a funny tweet um it was just like uh <laughs> don't make the uh the protest photo be the new uh you know I went on like a trip to like whatever country photo, because those are always kind of like, you know, you know, everyone knows a photo. It's like, they're at like some orphanage with a whole bunch of like cute kids and they're like holding a kid as like a prop. And it's like, and like, here's the thing. I've gone to Kenya. I have spent time at the orphanage. The kids are adorable. They climb all over you. Um, I did take a lot of pictures, but like, you don't have to make that your like profile picture. Like, you know what I mean? You don't have to, you know? So yeah.
1: You kind of you did mention kind of um, the importance of you taking care of your mental health like throughout the past couple weeks. Uh, how have you been doing that? How have you been running through this? Because you know it's it's been a lot.
2: Ooh yeah, buddy yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's been it has been it has been challenging, um, very very challenging. So um, I my running has been kind of interesting uh, lately. Um, it's kind of Not great, but I was having – I had a little bit of an injury issue um, earlier this year, so that's why I didn't run indoor, and I was gearing up, you know, just for outdoor. Um, But I was honestly kind of forcing it because um, I was okay. It's 2020, my year to – you know, I was planning for this to be my last year, um, and, you know, I really wanted to make the Olympic trials um, after um, uh, having not made the Olympic trials in 2016. Just a little quick recap. I graduated 2013, took two two years off the track. Decided, like a like crazy person, oh, let me just come back to it. And then I came back to track um, and then almost made uh, the electros trials, but didn't. And then um, uh, the years after that, um, have run, you know, decently well, um, been able to make it to uh, USA's uh, a number of times and also um, run uh, for New York Athletic Club throughout the country and also um, in Canada. So that's a real quick recap. Anyway, um, this year, I was like, oh boy, we're going to have to try to force this to work. And so when COVID happened, I was like, okay, actually, I have a whole year now. Um, so I actually have been taking a very slow, long, long wow, a very slow, long, uh, you know, a new word there. I get it. Right, <laughs> <laughs> slow, long, um, you know, uh, kind of a process. So I've really been just focusing on um, doing some yoga. Um, I've been doing um, a mixture of like jogging and then bike cardio. Um, so, so, that's been, so that's been nice. Um, I am not planning to do any like hard workouts for a while just because I don't need to. Uh, I don't know if there are going to be any track meets this summer, but my kind of view is like, it's not, not what's the point, but yeah, what's the point? I mean, there, none of the times are going to count um, until December 1st anyway. Like, so it's like, you can run 144 if you want, but you know. Um, so that
0: first BU meet it's going to be lit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going to come there like with a vengeance, you know what I mean? So um, and BU is where I run my indoor PR. So I, I definitely want to go back there and, uh, and, uh, ha- have a good run at that. But, um, but yeah, so it's funny. I actually use like my biking and my yoga as time to kind of like check out. Um, so, uh, when I bike, I turn my, uh, I turn my, uh, I have my phone with me, but I turn my notifications off. Um, I put on airplane mode. I just listen to music, um, when I'm doing yoga, um. You Know, I don't even, even though if when you're doing yoga, you're not distracted by your phone, I don't even keep my phone near me. My phone is somewhere completely away. Um, I really struggle through the downward dog and all the sequencing, and I just be in the moment of struggling and having my arm shake and wonder why <laughs> I'm doing it, you know what I mean? But uh, but um, but that, that's uh, that's kind of where I am right now, and I am, I'm actually, funny enough, looking forward to to doing some longer slow workouts um you know in about the next month a month and a half um because now i can kind of have an extended kind of base building period so i'll be doing a lot of uh you know probably thousand meter repeats on grass and you know just um you know uh repeat two mile, repeat mile two miles and i am not a distance athlete like in any stretch of the imagination but um I do think that those things are helpful. Um, And so I'm actually looking forward to kind of building a really solid base.
1: All right. I want to get to it. What made a Princeton guy so riled up about the news that he took to Medium to write Brown University, if you were actually serious about racial justice, you would not be cutting the men's track and field team?
2: That's a (laughs) title, isn't it? Oh, man. It is.
1: So (laughs) how, how did this come about? That
0: clickbait, no. baby.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it worked. I mean, okay, funny. Like, I just started writing on Medium because I'm like, I'm, I'm home all the dang time. I'm not going to, you know. Um, And uh, my Medium posts have, like, gotten, you know, my first one was, like, you know, 13 views. And you know, second one, I think, was, like, 30, 45. I think this one is at 28,000 or 27,000 right now. So it's just, like, this obviously struck a chord with a lot of people. Now, why did a Princeton guy, and I'm wearing my Princeton hat, you know, just to give... uh, I can't believe this shit. (laughs) I'm also wearing uh, a polo, Princeton polo. I'm
0: wearing my Cornell uh, athletic shorts. shorts. You just can't see them. And the listeners won't be able to see them either way. No, no,
2: no. But listen, I'm ready for the the podium, which we were atop of a lot when I was at Princeton. (laughs) But... But uh, he's drinking.
0: <laughs> That's the sound of me, sipping, <laughs> just not saying
2: anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's true. Anyway, um, going back to <laughs> <laughs> why uh, the guy was just so riled up. Um, honestly, for me, uh, the Ivy League is a very special conference. And even though we fought like heck to beat each other at Heps, um, I really felt like, you know, after helps, it was like one Ivy, you know what I mean? we go to regionals, everyone would be cheering for each other, you know, be genuinely happy if the Ivy League guy made it, you know, to the nationals, especially in an event that, you know, wasn't expected, you know, um, you know, I remember being so happy, seeing the Harvard girls like kill it in the sprints, you know, and, uh, um, you know, I remember getting, you know, a lot of love from uh, a lot of the different Ivy League coaches when we were at regionals um, and even at nationals when when we did our thing there, so. That's one reason. Another reason um, is, I mean, I love Princeton. Princeton was my alma mater. But I honestly, and you probably might hear a lot of Ivy League athletes say this, but I'm going to say it. I would have been thrilled and honored to have represented any of the Ivy League institutions um, because the opportunity that's afforded by an Ivy League education um, is really unique and special. I don't have to really go into why. And the fact that track and field offers opportunities for kids that may not otherwise have an opportunity uh, to have an Ivy League education. And these kids are capable. Like, you know, even me, I did not think I could get into an Ivy League school. I had good grades in high school, um, but I, was, I thought, OK, I'll just go after Duke. Duke will be my top, top school. But I thought Duke was like a stretch. I thought Duke was like, a, OK, all the stars have to align in order for Duke to happen. Um, so I was really kind of targeting schools um, that were of a lower academic profile um, and also a little bit of a lower athletic profile, too, because uh, I kind of like randomly ran quick, like my junior year. Um, and so, which, hey, that was great. But, um, but, uh, <clears throat> but then when I did have a great junior year, then I started getting calls from the Ivy League and then started realizing, oh, I can go to the Ivy League? Wait, wait I can go to Princeton? If that's the best school. You're saying you I can go there? you know that was something that you know really was huge for me. And you know, not to give you know a big soft story. I'm very, very fortunate, been been very blessed in my life. Um, uh, but you know, I did come from humble, uh, humble beginnings, humble background. Um and so Brown taking away one of those opportunities. I saw a person like me not having that opportunity. And that riled me up so much so that I had to call them out because I'm like, this is wrong. You cannot take away the sport that is the most egalitarian in terms of access, um, income, you know, in terms of like income inequality, but also in terms of race. I mean, most uh, most Ivy League athletes are white, and like, there's not there's not an, a problem with whiteness. However, when you look at the sports that are offered at Ivy League institutions. I mean, a lot of schools have like 38 sports. And so like half of them are like the super like affluent sports that you need to like have a lot of money in order to participate in.
0: Cornell no, had a lightweight crew and a heavyweight crew team. <laughs> Not a lot of black kids on either team. Let me All tell right. you that. <laughs>
2: right, exactly. Um, and so, and you know, people talk about like, okay, yeah, affirmative action. But the biggest kind of affirmative action, you know, or the biggest kind of, easy entree into the Ivy league is through kind of these elite sports. I mean, and then you also want to drill it down. Track and field has the largest participation of any sport in the country. Now, if you're talking about just male participation, football outranks it, track is second. But when you include male and female, track is number one. So you have the sport that has the biggest participation um, and had, of course, the greatest access. And you are taking that away in lieu of sports that have very small kind of, uh, you know, um, kind of <clears throat> participation numbers and have a high barrier to, act, barrier to entry. And so it was, I just felt like it, it was completely wrong. And you shouldn't be trading opportunities to get into an Ivy League school um, for one group of people and giving the already privileged, the people who already have a bunch of advantages, even greater advantages. Because here's the thing, A kid who plays squash in Connecticut, it doesn't matter if they go to Brown or Princeton or Harvard, they can go to some other school and they're likely going to be okay. You know, their families have, you know, money, uh, they have connections. They're going to be all right. They're going to go to a college. A kid who ran really, really fast, who ran a really great 1500, um, you know, at, their small you know uh state meet or their um you know their their local kind of city conference um and gets a call up from somebody they have a life-changing opportunity they have an opportunity to change their future in a way that otherwise would not have been possible and so why am i going to sit back and let that happen i'm not so that's why i wrote the article
0: and and I think I mean, we can maybe in a second get into sort of the the nuts and bolts of what happened with Brown and sort of the lessons from that. But one thing I just want to say too is, you know, I can see the you know the let's run thread now if I call the Ivy League kids talking about their Ivy League problems. But like I you know looking at that from the other side, you know, my 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 I was a gov major. My gov classes did not look like the track team. The track team was kids from you know. All over the country. It wasn't a bunch of kids from New Jersey and Connecticut. Um, You know, the one of the most racially diverse teams, one of the most geographically diverse teams, kids that were the first person in their family to go to college. Like, there's, there's something to be said for thinking about, you know, what you're investing in when you're investing in a track program. And you know, you you mentioned kind of the, the A word, the affirmative action word, but, you know, when you talk about sort of what is the value of, you know, cultivating a diverse student population, it's like the track teams do that by themselves. Like, they, they're they a value add for a university. And I think kind of why, um, particularly why some of the language that, that was used in, in Brown's decision kind of got us so riled up was because you know it really kind of erased that part of the conversation um and, and before we kind of talk about brown specifically like russell I'd, I'd be interested to know how you felt sort of like what did it feel like to, for you to be a black athlete at princeton and to be a member of the track team in terms of how that both how you felt you were seen or not seen or heard or not for heard and, and the impact it had in you
2: Yeah, I mean that. You know, that's a great question. Um, You know, even even me. I mean, I'm a person who, uh, you know, loves uh, Princeton. Uh, I've spent a number of years at Princeton after I've graduated. I worked at the university, uh, helping with first generation low income students, volunteer assistant coach. uh, You know, coached at Princeton. Um, I've helped students uh you know with a bunch of a bunch of their issues and you know have gone to different helps uh, as a coach as a volunteer assistant so Princeton is uh has a special place in my heart I'm actually still living in Princeton right now even so with that said I did have issues you know uh, when I was first uh, on campus and um I didn't necessarily feel comfortable um on campus and in some ways on the team at first um and so and that's just a reality I mean I was one of you know you know, I'm, I have very great relationships on, you know, with a lot of guys on the team, very successful, you know, just from uh, when I started, you know, as a freshman in the Ivy League, um, you know, a big contributor to the Princeton program, you know, so even someone like me, um, I had times where I didn't really feel, you know, that comfortable, um, and, you know, that uh, that took time to kind of work through, you know, was it me? Am I the person that it's kind of feeling uncomfortable is it other people that are making me feel uncomfortable? you know you kind of have these questions that you're thinking about i think my personal situation was made a little weirder because i also um uh 800 guy who also was on the four by four so i was kind of sliding between groups a lot um and so my personal experience is a little bit different than other folks because i wasn't with the distance guys enough to be one of the distance dudes but I wasn't with the sprinters enough to be a sprinter. So I was just like this in between, like, uh, you know, like, like, you can't really do a tempo, but like, you can't really run, you know, a hundred. I'm like, yeah, but like, y'all want to need me on y'all relay. So get on my face.
0: No, just, no. <laughs> Indoor hats. There's about 15 different events, Russell. Yeah. Can run, so. <laughs> no,
2: no, it, 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 was, it was all, it was all love. And I, you know, I did, you know, grow, I'm close to each group, but you know, the reality is that I was kind of sliding between the two and and, that was kind of reality. Um, But um, yeah, even for me, you know, it it was tough and I had a couple of tough experiences that weren't on the track team, but happened on campus that I didn't really feel like I could share with anyone. So I kind of just dealt with it, you know, on my own. I remember uh, getting carded on campus by public safety, I was taking a nap outside of the dining hall, um, and they walked by, and they woke me up, and they said, hey, are you a student here? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm waiting for the dining hall to open. They said, okay. They walked away, and they came back, and then said, oh, yeah, can I see your ID? And I, you know, pulled my ID out and showed them, and, you know, um, and then I didn't really think much of it. Um, the dining hall opened. I went to the dining hall. Then I was sitting with one of my uh, white friends, <clears throat> and I was like, yeah, something weird just happened. Like, you know, the peace safety guy, he just, like, Asked for my ID, it was kind of strange, whatever. And then my white friend that was like, no, I'm a, I was a freshman at that point. This guy was a junior. He was like, I've been here for three years, that's never happened to me. I've slept everywhere on this campus. You need to go tell somebody. Um, so I'm actually thankful for him for, for letting me know. Cause I actually was gonna let it roll off my shoulder. I was like, okay, whatever, it's no, no big deal. But for him to say, no, 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 that's not right. I've been all over this campus, you know, sleeping on all the couches, um, and I've never had that experience. Um, you need to go tell someone. So I did go and, you know, go to public safety. I wrote a very lengthy letter to the, um, to one of the deans. and had a number of meetings that basically was like, oh, well, he's not racist. I was like, I didn't say he was racist. We didn't have the language to really figure out this stuff back then. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, but that was an entire experience. That I just never shared with anyone on the track team or like with the coaches. Cause I didn't, we feel like I, I didn't know how to have that conversation. So that was, like, kind of stressful, and I just didn't really, you know. um, So it was just things like that that kind of made me not feel super comfortable at first. Um, Things definitely got better, and, you know, like I said, love Princeton. I'm still there. I think it's a great institution. Um, I think it provides an amazing um, atmosphere and experience for a lot of uh, different reasons. Um, But, you know, anytime you are, um, you know, coming from entering into a different world with a different culture, um, you might you might have some of these kind of uh, growing pains for lack of a better word.
1: So Russell, I kind of want to dive into sort of a little bit of the uh, the argument that I guess like Brown presented in the reasons why they cut the track team for you to kind of examine it. What was it that really sort of the points that bugged you the most? Because I think the line that stands out the most was um, let's see, it was you cannot address racial injustice without addressing socioeconomic and educational injustice and that kind of i think like would boil down a lot of your argument but what really is the issue in their logic for cutting the the program you think
2: gotcha so like a lot of us when i first heard about the decision i was mad um and i was okay this is ridiculous but let me go look on their website because i was hoping that there was going to be some sort of like pretty good rationale for okay even though i hate this Okay, that's a, that's a good explanation. Their explanation, for lack of a better word, is listen, we have losing programs and we want to make them win. So let's um, get rid of some programs so that we can hyper focus on the programs that remain. Okay, so they want to increase competitiveness, is how they phrased it. Um, you know, to put it nicely, but you know, kind of in plain speak, they wanted to make their teams do a lot better. And then it said something about increasing diversity across the sports and they talked about how reducing um and they also talk about increasing diversity between varsity and club sports okay so if they demote track and field yes the club teams will become more diverse that sounds great right um and then also the sailing team is, has a really strong winning record so by raising sailing up to varsity they'll be able to get a uh a more positive winning percentage um, you know in terms of their athletic department and they'll be able to better diversify all of their sporting offerings in terms of club and varsity sounds great unless you actually know what that means so club sports are not the same as varsity sports varsity sports means you get this, the, those teams get recruiting spots so if you have a club sport club sports don't have recruiting spots so you have to get into university and then if you're a student at the university you can sign up for a club team. Having recruiting spots is one of the main ways that you can get into one of these schools. I mean it's incredibly hard to get into these schools but if you are a recruited athlete um, at an Ivy League institution and you get a likely letter um, the likelihood that you're going to get into that university is very high um, like extremely high. So essentially you have guaranteed spots. Now, the way that I've kind of broke it down and why this kind of made me so upset, they're they're elevating sailing up to varsity. They haven't said whether varsity is going to have, whether sailing is going to have recruiting spots or not, but it will likely have recruiting spots because it will be varsity. You have a sport like sailing basically effectively replacing track and field. Sailing is a sport that is very homogenous in terms of race, pretty much all white, but also very homogenous in terms of income. You cannot sail unless you are not only, you're not even middle class. You have to be upper middle class to just wealthy in order to sail. You have to have access to water and you have to have a boat with the sail. Like, you know, it's a very inaccessible sport. And so.
0: More expensive than a pair of shoes.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Whereas track and field is the cheapest sport. Track and field costs at families on average $200. Um, whereas, you know, even sports like lacrosse and, uh, and <clears throat> hockey, are about you know, uh, $2,500 to $3,000 on average, and it can go up from there. So, and then also if you wanna think about how you get recruited to these sports, in order to get recruited to a lot of these sports, you have to make a highlight reel, which might have to you know include paying someone to make a professionally produced highlight reel. You might have to go to expensive sports camps. You might have to go to expensive leagues um, you know, in soccer, even though soccer is a more accessible sport in some ways, the academy system is very expensive. Um, you know, uh, even basketball, I mean, basketball is a more accessible sport, but the AAU tournament system isn't super expensive. It's not, it's also not cheap and you have to travel a lot, even though a lot of track and field athletes do do AAU track and field, you can, as a track and field athlete, just run super fast at your high school track meets, um, because everyone knows about, you know, mile split and, you know, um, and, uh, what's called, uh, direct athletics, all of that feeds into a, you know, a central place uh, and so if you run well at a meet and that meet is electronically timed and the results feed into this national database you can get recruited so you actually don't it, it's a very low barrier to entry um, and so you have a sport that has a low barrier to entry and you're re- removing that and replacing it with a sport that's a very high barrier to entry and then you're giving those people likely letters so likely letters uh, or you're giving those people sorry recruiting spots if, if these teams have recruiting spots, they're basically effectively guaranteeing that they're going to get XYZ people into the school for each sport. Well, if you have a sport that almost exclusively caters to white affluent people, you're gonna get guaranteed spots for white affluent people into the school, whereas track and field, you have guaranteed spots that cast a wider net where you're, you might get a really affluent guy who runs really fast, or well, you might get a really poor guy who lives in Appalachia who runs really fast, or a really poor guy who lives in, in Brooklyn who runs really fast or throws really you know far or jumps really well. So that is, that is the issue. I mean, 65% you know, of athletes in the Ivy League are white. When you, are <clears throat> when you get a likely letter, um, every school has their own kind of metrics, but um, the Harvard lawsuit that came out a couple years ago, there was a lot of data that was released, um they have a metric system and uh, one of the metrics um uh, there's like levels one, on one of the levels if that person got a likely letter they were 80 percent or 88 percent likely to get into the school but if they didn't have that likely letter they had a less than one percent chance of getting into the school so like literally wow. if you are recruited and you meet the threshold that the school deems that you need to reach you're going to get in so that's why it's an issue it's like and all, and if you look at the income breakdowns of all these schools, the general population of all these schools skews white and wealthy. So why are you creating more pathways for white and wealthy people to get in? Like they're already, because if you look at the broader context, people who are more wealthy tend to do better on the SATs. They tend to have better grades. They tend to, they tend to have all the structural kind of advantages already put in place. Um, and so why build in another basically guaranteed pathway? when you have a sport that has a pathway for anyone who has the talent to get in. So that is why, you know, you know, uh, you know, this issue is particularly so important to me.
0: And part of why that matters again, we're talking a lot about Brown, but you know, Akron had a big issue with its program, men's track and field programs, constantly get cut. I really doesn't have scholarship money take everything Russell just said and for schools with scholarships, that's money that could be spent on black and brown students that's being spent on white students. It's the same issue regardless of where the program is. And, and, you know, that's obviously you talk about allocation of resources, you know, it's like a likely letter is one thing, but, you know, when when this conversation happens at other schools, you're talking about spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on on students and, and which students you are setting up to spend that money on that that makes a huge difference
2: yeah i'm glad you brought up the fact that, that ivy league schools don't have um, <clears throat> uh, scholarships so people might be wondering so why are we saying that poor kids to ivy league schools are they super expensive yes they're super expensive they also have some of the most generous financial aid packages of any unit of any universities in the country so a lot of ivy, i think all of them i'm not certain but if not all of the majority of the ivy league schools um, <clears throat> Have uh, no loan financial aid packages. Um, so if you get a financial aid package, it will be all grant based. You won't have any sort of loan attached to the uh, to the package. And a lot of schools also have a threshold. If you if your family has a household income up below a certain threshold, you you know you won't have any sort of family contribution um so for in that i'll just be honest for me um i did get some scholarship offers um uh, but you know due to princeton's generous financial aid it actually made more sense for me to go to princeton because i was able to go for free and um or next to, yeah i was able to go for free um i had a personal contribution but my mom didn't have to pay anything um and i didn't have to worry about oh my god if i don't perform well is my scholarship going to get taken and if if that happens, well, I'd be able to complete college, you know? So that's, that's another reason why, you know, the Ivy league presents a really awesome opportunity for people who, um, for whom, you know, the Ivy league is something that they want to do.
1: The other stat that's been floating around from your piece is just, you know, the fact that Brown's track and field team has more black males than lacrosse, baseball, ice hockey, and crew teams combined. I want you to take me through the process of, finding that statistic out and just sort of like are you just clicking through each roster and just getting more and more upset as you like go through
2: (laughs) yeah essentially yes so i'm clicking through the rosters and then you know um and but then also uh i've I've been in consultation with some of the brown uh, folks as well and um yeah and you know their data backed it up as well so it's just like this is ridiculous uh but it's not that surprising because uh some of the research that i've done um nationally i think uh non-black participation in men's lacrosse is i think less than 10 percent. so i mean uh, you know um, i college lacrosse um i think hockey is similar and so it's just like a lot of these sports are just like very like homogenous like they're not diverse um you know, there, there aren't really those many diverse sports, uh, in college, actually, um, funny enough, um, you have track, football, basketball, to less or more degrees, depending on the place. Soccer can be a little bit uh, diverse, um, depending on the school. Um, I don't have the NCAA wide numbers for, for soccer. Um, but, um, but that's just about it. I mean, all the other sports are pretty homogenous and that's, that's uh, you know, people probably wouldn't think that um, that sport would have such stark racial divides. Um, that college athletics and college athletics, um, you know, is a very clear pathway to a school. Now, let me be clear: I'm not saying that college athletics is the only way that people can get into a school. I'm not saying that's the only way a poor kid from wherever can get into a school. No, but it is a distinct pathway. And if you have those distinct pathways, they definitely should be preserved. And if you have those distinct pathways, they definitely shouldn't be replaced with a greater pathway for people who already have all the access. It's like, yo, like why do we need, like if you have like a yacht club, like do you really need like a (laughs) guarantee Brown or Harvard? Like you will be, listen, you can go to like whatever state, like, you want, and you will still be fine. Like, like you don't need, you don't. That's not going to be life changing for you. You know, I mean. And, but if you do get in, if you're super smart, if great grades great, but like, I'm I am not interested in in, in thinking about. Oh well, we need to re- make more opportunities. Um, you know, uh, provide more opportunities. You know, and then you know, it's going back to the Ivy League thing. The two biggest admissions advantages to get into Ivy League schools are athletics and legacy um so you have athletics which already skews you know to um you know richer wider sports and then legacy legacy means that your parent or someone in your family went to the university well these universities used to be some of them used to be all male and a lot of them used to be a lot you know their student bodies used to be a lot richer than they are now so if you're talking about legacy you're pulling from a demographic you know you're, you're pulling from a population that is wealthier and wider than kind of the current student population and wealthier and wider than the current, U um, S more broadly. And so they have an admissions advantage. So you're kind of creating pathways for those who've already, so it's just, you know, I know a lot of people kind of have knee jerk reactions to a lot of this stuff. Um, but you kind of have to look at, what what pathways actually do exist versus the ones that seem as if they exist. I mean, I know a lot of people feel as so, though, oh, these schools are giving unfair kind of, uh, you know, pathways for, you know, black kids or brown kids, you know, uh, this, that, and the third. But when you look at kind of the pathways that really are kind of entrenched and look at the emissions benefits that those systems or those pathways provide, and the fact that if you are a sport applicant or if you are a legacy kid, you have a far greater shot of getting into these institutions. Um, I think you know that kind of will hopefully make people realize what the kind of issues are. Now, I'm not saying get rid of um, sports. Not, I love sports. I'm an athlete myself, um, and I'm not even saying you know legacy shouldn't ever exist. Um, you know, maybe in some cases. But those, if you want to think about what pathways that are created into these institutions. Um, those are the places you need to be looking first
0: and and just to really clearly i mean you know, I think some people could kind of listen to this podcast and think that you know we were talking about something totally different in the in the first twenty minutes that we are now, but I think you've really clearly drawn you know the the connection that it it's the same issue, and you know we can all kind of like chuckle about like, oh, we know what a crew team looks like or we know what a sailing team looks like, but it's that's I think that's part of what we're trying to get people to think about when we have these conversations about race and and racism and white supremacy is that, you know, the fact that we kind of all know that the sailing team is all white, like that unexamined is part of the problem. And and thinking critically about decisions like the decision that came down um, from Brown University, which on surface level, you know, didn't look like it was a decision about race, but when you think about it through that lens you see all of these consequences that ultimately were really harmful um and, and that having these conversations in any field whether it's track whether it's whatever you know um is part of kind of the challenge that that folks need to take on in in every aspect um i do just want to quickly jump in and just say um you know the title IX issue is also a really big part of that and and you know, obviously hyper conscious of the fact that we're three dudes talking on a podcast right now. But um, one of the things that that was really concerning about the the decision coming down from uh, Brown was that it was uh, in large part due to uh, their Title IX settlement, which, uh, you know, just to take a second, folks don't always kind of know. Title IX, is about uh, gender equity in sports uh, and specifically, well, it's actually about gender equity in a lot of uh, educational environments. But in sports, it's colloquially referred to the idea that you have to have some sort of equity between men and women athletes. And in D1 schools, that's usually talked about in terms of scholarships, but the law actually doesn't prescribe how you have to attain equity. And for Brown, they had a court case that was settled in 1998 that said it has to be tied to student population. Um, the brown student population has been getting more and more female. That's great, um, and they actually are majority female at this part. But but um, part of the challenge was that they were out of Title IX compliance because their athletes uh, they didn't have enough roster spots for varsity athletes um, to reflect a majority female population. Um, and part of why, again, looking at all of these structures, all these institutions, in the ways that they can either reinforce or fight um inequality the decision made by the brown administration initially was um to cut men's programs rather than increasing women's participation and obviously for a lot of folks that really kind of rubbed them the wrong way in terms of <laughs> that's not the point of title nine you know it's not to have less male athletes it's up to more female athletes and and you know when we talk about all of these issues um you know one of the things to think about is like what are you know, all, anyone in a position of power, um, whether it's a university, a team, uh, you know, any sort of political institution, anything, you know, it's like the decisions you make are going to make a positive impact or a negative impact, and none of them make no impact whatsoever. And so I think part of why we've become so um, vocal about this issue is to say, you know, while we're all we all should be a lot more thoughtful about, you know, the the decisions that people in power make and and the impacts they have on, on marginalized communities. And um, I think, you know, we, we want everybody to do better. We especially want people in, in, you know, communities like Brown University, which, you know, prides itself on being a diverse and inclusive community to do better. And, and that um, people need to think about, um, you know, every decision made, even if it's not on surface level about, Race or gender or that sort of thing about through the lens of how is this you know, impacting the communities that
1: it covers? So that's, David it's not even a question. That's just my monologue. <laughs> David, you ended up writing so for city, as you wrote, calling for excellence, an open letter to Brown University president Christina Paxson what was the impetus and because i got this from you on a like saturday afternoon so that's how you were spending most of your saturday i mean that that means it must have really rubbed you the wrong way was this just the statement that was put out earlier or what what explain i guess to the listeners who maybe haven't read the piece like what drove you to do this
0: sure so um when the decision first came out at the end of May from Brown, uh, I mean, I think people were the sort of initial visceral reaction was people were pissed off. they were cutting the track program <laughs> understandably. Um, and And upon looking closer at um, the actual substance of the decision, it became clear that there were a lot of these concerns that um, were kind of floating below this surface under this kind of Umbrella of this is, an they called this an excellence initiative, and and frankly for me that was what pissed me off most of all. Like, there's nothing excellent about this, um, and and you know the impacts and the way that they were not felt equitably for me um, was obvious from the beginning. And then on Saturday, uh, the the president released a clarifying statement about specifically the impacts on um, Title IX and and on diversity and inclusion. And essentially, I mean, to me, it looked like she essentially copped to the fact that they had these disparate impacts. And then there was no action, there was no, you know, effort to address that. And and it felt very disingenuous to me, um, you know, to feel, to see that statement acknowledging sort of what the issues at Matter were and not committing to taking an action to remedy that. Um, And that's kind of where I had to... (laughs) Run my mouth, and 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 frankly, I mean, I think one of the things I've struggled with the past, um, well, for a long time, but but especially these past couple of weeks, is how can I be useful as as a white male ally um, to a lot of these issues that I feel really strongly about, and to, you know, there's a lot of I've been trying, you know, the the way a lot, I think a lot of people have um, to listen. More than I talk, particularly on on issues of race, um, and 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 also, I mean, frankly, on on issues of you know women's involvement in sports as well. But this, to me, felt like an area where my voice and and my experience on this issue could be a really uh, you know a good contribution to kind of elevate this issue and bring people's eyes to it. Because frankly, I mean, we're seeing this with the you know the protests as well, and and a lot of these issues, you know, they're so It's it's in the interest of the folks in power to kind of let things die down and sweep them under the rug, and it's in the interest of folks that want to make a change to shine a light on it, and and ultimately that's what we're hoping that that you know that my piece can do, the Russell's piece can do, the the work that you know a lot of people have done on on this particular issue of brown track, but also all of these issues that we talked about is just that by keeping them in the forefront of the conversation that that we can force people to kind of commit to change
1: so for both of you what has been the general reaction that you guys have gotten obviously you know your uh, your friends that have gone to brown are probably you know uh all very supportive of the work that both of you guys have done but you know aside from that because they also have their website set up and have been petitioning for you know people to be active and, and sign the petition and raise some awareness uh for this issue but also kind of tied into that is where is your guys' level of optimism about, you know, the possibility of saving this program. It's its hard to say because, you know, sometimes when you hear the announcements, it's just so definitive and, you know, there's an initial charge of hope and, and action. You know, there's some sorrow from the athletes and then action from the alums and it kind of fizzles out. But, you know, this is still going on and it's fresh right now.
2: Yeah, well, firstly, I wanted uh, <clears> to... <throat> I thank David for writing uh, his piece um, because he brought uh, to fore a lot of uh, you know issues um, that this decision has not only with the kind of the racial uh, kind of act, racial justice or the access of diversity uh, into in, into these institutions um, and also the income uh, access that uh, track and field provides but then also uh, some of the uh, gender issues um, that were you know that this decision uh, kind of um, brought to the fore. And the fact that, you know, should, should the solution to uh, being out of gender equity result in cutting uh, uh, men's programs? And I think it was noted that uh, Paxton, the um, president of Brown, Initially looked at football, uh, but you know there's an Ivy League rule, and I learned that through David's piece. um, Ivy League rule that uh, they can't cut football, so they went to the next sport that the largest um, number of men, which you know um, ended up being track and field. Uh, I don't know if that is the right solution, um, and I don't know if that honors men's participation in track and field and also the, the I don't think that honors uh, female participation in sport um, at Brown University. So um, yeah, that was that's also a really important part of the conversation. Uh, <clears throat> in terms of the uh, kind of reaction and also the uh, response I've gotten from from Brown alumni, they've been incredibly uh, appreciative of the work that. Uh, uh, that I've done around this piece. And then also the work of a lot of other alums to elevate this issue. Um, the fact that they, there are people from other institutions, Princeton, Columbia, um, we have, uh, not Columbia, wow, well, Cornell, why well, I said you're from Columbia, um, Cornell, um,
0: don't tell Kyle.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, Kyle, Kyle tweeted, um, Liam, uh, um, Boyd uh, uh tweeted it. Um, we have, uh, you know, Dartmouth alums tweeting, you know, um, and, and really being involved and um, messaging me, okay, how else can I get involved? So there are a lot of people in Ivy League. A Harvard sprinter um, who graduated at, uh, reached out to me and asked me if she can get involved. So there are a lot of people who, you know, want to support, um, you know, uh, this initiative of getting Brown reinstated. Um, I've been on one of their calls. Uh, I will tell you that Brown, they are not playing any games. Um, They're track and field alumni. They are very organized. Um, They have a long plan in terms of how they want to fight this, Um, and they are hopeful that they don't have to resort to the long plan, but they do have a long plan in place. Um, So they, they are committed to fighting to see this change, and they are committed to putting the pressure on. And just a little bit of context: uh, Brown tried to cut some programs about ten years ago, and um, ended up reversing the decision. So it is not without precedent that decisions can be reversed. Um, the decisions that seemingly are definitive, with enough pressure applied, strategic pressure applied, uh, can be uh, overturned. And I think this was. Ill timing on uh, Brown's part that they dropped this when they did, because all these issues are at the fore, and the fact that they did it, you know, during a global pandemic, um, you know, they did it, you know, without consulting really anyone beforehand. Um, You know, it looks very poorly on them. They were trying to see if they can do it quickly and have it swept under the rug, but um, they are now, you know, facing a situation where they have egg on their face, and you know, no institution wants that. Um, no institution wants any bad publicity or press and so um, this uh, certainly uh, I think is making them you know think and the fact that the Brown University released another statement and uh, or long email to their uh, Brown community about the decision to me indicates that they're feeling the pressure now it didn't say that they were wavering on the decision but it went into further explanation of their decision and if you have to continue to explain yourself for why you're right, you know, that means that you're feeling pressured to answer some questions that people have. Um, And they're getting a lot of questions and they're not answering them pretty well, in my opinion. So um, I think that uh, I'm very hopeful that we're going to be able to be victorious in this fight. Um, And for me, it's really about, um, I I tweeted a couple of days ago um, that, you know, the reason why I'm fighting so hard, I'm not fighting, you know, I'm I'm fighting for that kid that I don't know that you know, I frankly may never know. But you know, I'm fighting for that kid, so they have that opportunity that I was able to have it um, take advantage of myself
0: and the, the one thing I would just add to that is that you know I, I'm very hesitant to sort of draw parallels because obviously you know the the kind of life and death issues around racism and police brutality are, are very different than a, a track program. Um, but at the same time, you know tomorrow they could announce that the track program is back, and that's great. Um, But that doesn't address how they got to the decision that they got to and the institutions that are in place and the structures they had that led to them making a decision that ultimately had a really negative impact on women and and athletes of color. And so, you know, I think we really strongly feel that there should be a track team um and, and that that they should bring that back but that's not the end of the conversation and i hope that's not the end of the conversation you know if if and when brown track is saved quote unquote um that they that they really do think about what it means to be supportive of student athletes at brown and and that everyone um you know thinks about sort of how the decision-making process for something that seems unrelated to these broader issues of inequality, like athletics funding can have really disparate impacts on communities and how they can make changes that, you know, not only kind of put the bandaid on the injury, but like fix the problem that caused the injury in the first place, you know? And that's, I think what we're asking for in so many of these conversations, you know, you're not just asking for fixing, the kind of surface symptom you're asking for fixing. You, we need to fix the root of the problem. And, and that applies to so many of these issues. But but I think that also very much applies here.
1: Well said, guys. And I'm super appreciative of the guy, the work that you guys are doing. So to kind of, you know, when we close out the show, usually we ask, you know, four or a couple of silly questions that end every episode. This is but... the most
0: serious podcast I've ever done.
1: <laughs> yeah. So kind of, I want I want to kind of change it up a little bit. And in light of, you know, the movement that's going on right now, Russell, I wanted to ask you if you wanted to highlight or underscore a certain organization or a program or a way to take action from the listeners, because, uh, you know, you, you you did speak about you, you're fighting for that kid that you don't know, and you see yourself in that kid, and maybe there were programs or organizations along the way that helped you get to the point that you were, whether it was, you know being able to run at Princeton or beyond, is there any sort of place that you kind of want to highlight um, that people can give back to or learn more about?
2: That's a great question. Now, <clears throat> what I will say, since this is a running podcast, um, so a lot of people love running or are really interested in running. Um, support youth track and field programs. Um, I think that is a beautiful way of kind of, leveraging kind of your allyship in this moment to affect meaningful change. And so what what do I mean by that? Well, there are a lot of track and field programs out there, youth track and field programs that, you know, are running USATF or AAU that are serving, you know, some low income areas where they have kids who are low income. Um, A lot of these uh, teams, you know, don't necessarily have a lot of money and they try to make it work any the best way they can. If you have, if you know of any of those teams, or even if you don't, um, if you know if there's a community that has, um, you know, uh, track and field programs, uh, what you can do, you can just go to, honestly, just go to USATF's um, kind of um, (coughs) website and look at whatever region um, is associated with, uh, whatever youth region is associated with where you live. Um, You can also go to AAU's website um, and see similar uh, kind of a similar breakdown, and then see what teams exist in those areas, and then what teams are running those meets. And um, you know, honestly, just uh, you know, call you know, or, or, or ask around and say, hey, which team or which teams would be awesome? Would, would be great places for me to you know give some of the uh, you know, to give a donation or give some resources. Um, you know, that could be a really awesome way of giving back financially. Another way to can give back, you know, if you have a lot of knowledge in a certain area. Um, you know, once things open back up, you know, you can go to these track meets. You can go to these cross country meets. You know, um, you know, you can encourage. Um, you know, you you, you can uh, say, okay, listen, I'm going to give a free, uh, you know, um, how to, you know, uh, manage, you know, uh, SAT preparation, um, free resources for the SAT preparation, or something like that. You can go out to, uh, you know, the cross country meets or to the indoor track meets, youth meets. Um, those are just ways within the track and field space um that you know if you want to kind of leverage um kind of your allyship in a, in a significant way that's one way that you can do it because i'll be honest the way that i had an opportunity was through something like that i was running at a local uh cross-country meet and there was a guy who was a director of diversity at uh, a prep school um and he had a kid his kid was running in the league as well when I guess you just saw how I interacted with people and how I spoke and whatever. And you know, um, he approached my mom and myself and said, "Hey, uh, we're looking for you know to increase the diversity at our school. We think your kid would be a great candidate." And um, that changed my educational, you know, uh, uh, trajectory. If I hadn't gone to that school, I don't know what college I would have been prepared for. To be honest, I'm the same guy, you know, what I mean, but I was afforded just by. You know, um, virtue or luck or providence, you know, whatever you believe in, um, was given the opportunity. And so you never know uh, what type of informational capital you may have and how that might impact someone. So contributions don't necessarily always have to be financial, they can come in a lot of different ways. Um, and so that's uh, some ways that I, w- I would recommend. Um, in terms of other broader organizations, there are a lot of organizations out there. Um, I think. Uh, the best thing that you can do. uh, Honestly, someone that you trust who's in the advocacy space on social media, um, they are posting a whole bunch of links. Um, So go check out the organizations that they are kind of highlighting and then see which ones, uh, you know, seem to be the ones that you're most comfortable with. I can name some, um, you know, that, you know, that might be good for one thing or another, um, you know, and there, there's so many different organizations doing great work. So what I will say is, uh, if you are gonna donate to organizations, see if the if, how the money is being spent, who is it benefiting, who's running those organizations. Um, and then I also wanna challenge people to think about, um, you know, how are they being in support of people who are at the margins within the margins. So, you know, i thinking about uh, people who are, uh, gender-based minorities, people who are sexual minorities, you know, think about, think, think about people who, um, think about, uh, organizations that are, that are serving the entire community, not just different aspects of it. So I, I, that's, uh, what I would, uh, say for people who are interested And it sounds like a lot of work. It is. I'm giving you homework. If you're committed to doing some work, I'm um, supporting, um, you got to do some of the late work. So, um, but I gave you a nice little pathway, gave you a nice little, uh, you know, um, roadmap to follow. So, um, you know, good luck and, you know, finding, you know, a way to get engaged.
1: I hope the listeners take some action. All right, Russell, thank you so much, David. Thank you for joining. Oh yeah.